This program deals with themes of an adult nature and is intended for a mature audience. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. We must guard against the military-industrial complex. Exopolitics, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events. From somewhere in the desert, between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Fairy Tales. Because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! The power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. Soldiers, don't fight for slavery, fight for liberty! The only thing we have to fear is fear itself! Sooner or later, though. You always have to wake up. Be skeptical, but don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas, where we uncover the truth, one guest at a time. For those who dare to seek, Veritas is the place where they shall find. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, make yourself at home. I want to thank all our members. As always, you are keeping Veritas alive. Tonight's special guest is known by many around the world. His impeccable research and true journalistic approach have made him a bestseller. Jim Mars is our special guest, and we'll be discussing his new book, The Trillion Dollar Conspiracy, and many current world events. Jim Mars will be with us shortly. Next week, he is back, Robert Morning Sky, not to be confused with Robert Morning Star. He returns to Veritas, 2012 and beyond. Find out what the elders and ancient wisdom say. Could this be Robert Morningsky's last appearance? What does he know about 2012 that we don't? Find out next week. And to those wondering if Cliff High will come back, the answer is yes. Cliff will be back sometime in July. 
I hear it will be his last show of the year. So expectations are really high. I know you are all looking forward to it as much as I am. And I have placed another order for more metal-cased 8GB USB drives since the last batch sold out so quickly. Let me tell you what it includes. The entire collection of audio files for Season 1. That's 56 shows, all in CD audio quality. And there's more. Clifford Stone Government UFO Files. I've included Veritas History, which is the premiere episode transcript, uh, which tells you how the show was created. This transcript is currently for sale, but I'm including it for free with this purchase. FBI and CIA declassified files on Tesla, Einstein, and Von Braun. And with the space that was left, I included the best music of season one. This is some of the best music you heard during our first year on the air. If there had been more space available, I would have included more. But that's all I could squeeze. So don't let this new batch go. Head on over to VeritasShow.com and click on the Veritas store to make your purchase. To listen to the complete version of this and all our past and future shows, become a member. You will receive immediate access to all our inventory of shows, that's 82 to date, and a few bonus interviews, the Magicor Forum, and the Veritas Chatroom. Just head on over to our website, veritasshow.com, click on subscribe and take Veritas with you. I receive news related to the Gulf oil disaster on a daily basis. Sometimes it's difficult to make sense of all of it, since there are so many different perspectives being presented, even via alternative news. In my communication with a few scientists, I have come to a few conclusions that are personal and simply based on the information I have been exposed to. The following may not be fact, but it is worthy of looking into. Was this quote-unquote accident premeditated? I would hope not. But if so many institutions sold so many of their BP shares weeks prior to this event, what are the probabilities of this simply being a coincidence? We are talking about a number of large institutions selling their shares. What are the chances that Halliburton acquires Boots & Coots company, a well-controlled company responsible for having fixed all the burning oil wells left behind by Saddam Hussein in Kuwait in 1991, during the first Gulf War. Why would BP's CEO sell one-third of his shares of the company he's heading just a short time before the accident unless he knew something would happen? I saw a map of the oil platforms located in the Gulf of Mexico, and they are thousands. Looking at that map, which I have in my possession, shows that all of these platforms are located in clusters. The Deepwater Horizon platform is completely isolated from the rest, almost like a lonely dot in the ocean. Once again, we look at the probabilities. If you have thousands of platforms clustered, you would think the accident may occur to one of those and not to the lonely one, unless that lonely one was put there on purpose. Do you find the color of the quote-unquote oil strange? Growing up in Florida, I saw oil on the shores every so often and remember it being very black. Could this be asphalt? Could this also be biodegradable on a short-term basis? And microbes in the ocean eat this all the time? Could these smaller ejections we are seeing at the bottom of the ocean floor be a natural occurrence? 
And because of the existence of these microbes, we never heard of it? Could this location have been punctured on purpose so that more of this material would come out? Could the real purpose of these chemicals that are being sprayed on top of this material be so that the microbes cannot eat it, therefore allowing it to come to shore right at the beginning of the summer so that it has more shock value effect to those witnessing in Louisiana, Alabama, Mississippi, and Florida? What if what's killing the animals is not the quote-unquote oil, but the chemicals? If this was a premeditated event, what is the real purpose and the expected outcome? I don't want to start the comparison with 9-11, but I have to. Do you remember the word that was most frequently mentioned by the mainstream media back then? It was incompetence. What is the most frequently used word now? Incompetence. The word incompetence almost justifies the action. In my opinion, this is criminal negligence, if any. Furthermore, a corporation has limited liability. If BP says tomorrow we are out of money, they can simply file for bankruptcy protection, and that is the end of it. I don't need to tell you who is left to pay the bill. During 9-11, the blame was passed around between the many U.S. intelligence agencies. Here, the blame is being passed around between BP and a few other companies. At the end of the day, the blame game continues. Our government seems to be stuck in analysis paralysis, and that's if they are really thinking of alternative plans. Ask yourself why people are told to stand down. Does that sound familiar? Mr. Vice President, does the order stand? I'm referring to Vice President Cheney back in 2001, who continued to give orders to stand down. Why are these vessels that can be used to collect oil being told to stand down? Why is all the international help being rejected if this is as big as we are told? It's almost as if they want this substance to make it to shore. That's why. Many are talking about forced relocations, FEMA camps, etc. So far, unless they are ready to remove the life support system connected to what's left of our economy, I don't see the logic. But again, what they do usually doesn't make sense either. Our president goes to the situation room when there are problems. And the first question he asks is, where are our carriers? Ladies and gentlemen, our carriers just crossed the Suez Canal. American and Israeli forces are massing in Azerbaijan, and Saudi Arabia is also allowing the preparations. Could we be heading to the next war? I have not seen such a confluence of events take place all at the same time. You may remember all my conversations with guests, and even tonight we'll discuss this very important fact. The United States has not been taken down because we have guns. The Japanese did not dare invade because they were very aware of this fact. If coastal cities surrounding the Gulf are vacated, could this allow an invasion? Could our own government be the one taking us down? I know this sounds far-fetched, but simply start connecting dots. 9-11 was the new Pearl Harbor that allowed the government to rally the population behind them to start new wars. The report from Iron Mountain is presented to President Kennedy to talk about always having conflict. First, the Cold War, then terrorism, then a natural disaster. Have we entered the new phase? Is this the natural disaster the report talks about? The two most profitable ventures are war and disaster. We currently have both. Could a war with Iran start in a few days? 
We'll see. This is enough for today. For updates on more news, visit our website and our forum. That's where the real discussion is taking place. Remember, my interaction with you does not end with the show. It only begins. And now, get ready to spend a night with the best-selling author and one of the few true journalists out there. One of my true favorites. The Trillion Dollar Conspiracy. Are we a nation of zombies? Is the New World Order already in place? Was the economy collapse engineered? Would wars be necessary in a one-world government? Who really rules the world? Are food and water being poisoned? Is the education system really educating or dumbing down our children? If you want to believe the mainstream media, stop this audio now. If you want to know, don't go anywhere. And pay attention to Jim Mars, who's coming up next. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. Most of the great music you hear right here on the Veritas show is supplied by the independent artists from Jamendo.com. If you hear a song you like, go over to our homepage, VeritasShow.com, click on the guest, look up the song, and download it. You can even buy the group's CDs, in many cases right there at Jamendo.com. James Gilliland, and you're listening to Veritas. Jim Mars graduated with a degree in journalism from the University of North Texas. He served in the U.S. Army, after which he became a reporter for the Fourth War Star-Telegram. Jim worked for and owned several Texas newspapers before becoming an independent journalist and author. His in-depth investigative book, Alien Agenda, has been cited as the best-selling non-fiction book on UFOs in the world, having been translated into several languages. He is also the author of the New York Times bestseller, Crossfire, The Plot That Killed Kennedy, a basis for the Oliver Stone film JFK, and Ruled by Secrecy, The Hidden History That Connects the Trilateral Commission, The Freemasons, and The Great Pyramids. He's also the author of Psy Spies, The Terror Conspiracy, Rise of the Fourth Reich, and his latest book, which will be the focus of tonight's interview, The Trillion Dollar Conspiracy, How the New World Order, Man-Made Diseases, and Zombie Bags are Destroying America. And directly from the Lone Star State of Texas, I am proud and honored to have for the first time on Veritas, journalist and best-selling author, Jim Mars. Hello, Mr. Mars, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? Howdy, Mel. It's a pleasure to be with you. The pleasure is all mine. May I call you Jim? Please do. Thank you. As I said during the past few shows, folks, we have been connecting dots for the past few weeks. Cliff High, Richard C. Hoagland, Jay Whitener, Dr. Joseph Farrell, and now Jim Mars. Jim, do you think we can connect uh, more dots tonight? 
Well, I think so. Uh, you know, I keep trying to tell people that uh, <clears throat> there's more of us than there are of those who are trying to uh, control us, and uh, we're getting smarter all the time, especially if we will pool our information. And, Jim, I have to tell you, you have no idea how many people have contacted me for months and months asking me to invite you on the show. You, you are a favorite for many, not only in the United States, but for many around the world. Also, all you have to do, folks, is just read a Jim Mars book, and it's going to be almost guaranteed. The combination of your research, writing style, and the topics just makes your work addicting. Wow, that's, uh, that's quite a commendation, but... Keep in mind what I try to tell people is I'm not asking for anyone's belief. Uh, I'm not a politician. I'm not an evangelist. Uh, I'm just an old reporter. But, hey, listen to me. Listen to my information. Then go check it out for yourself. And then it won't be a question of whether you want to believe me or not. You'll know that what I'm telling you is the truth. And absolutely. And, and on this show, we don't use the word believe. Uh, here, we don't want to believe. We want to know. In any event, as we always do on this show uh, with first-time guests, uh, Jim, give us some background of yourself and what motivated you to start looking into all of these topics you research. Well, my background is basically just as a print news reporter. Um, I had several awards, uh, Associated Press Writing Awards. I even got some photography awards. I was a I was a cartoonist. I've just been a communicator, and I've always been curious. I always want to know what was going on. Uh, I'm not a revolutionary or some idealist. I, you know, if the mafia is running the country, so be it. But I just want to know that's what it is. I want to know what's going on. And so I've always been curious, and I've always followed the evidence. Um, this is why I've been accused of being a conspiracy theorist. But uh, I try to explain I don't deal in theories. <laughs> I deal in uh, facts and, and information. Now, of course, there's plenty of misinformation out there. So it doesn't mean that everything I, I've ever written or ever said is 100% ground truth, but it's the truth as best as I can determine it. And uh, that's what I was taught in journalism school. You know, try to find out the truth and then present it to the public. And that's uh, basically all I've tried to do. Uh, as a news reporter and then uh, and now as an author um, it's uh, I did not leave journalism uh, journalism kind of left me uh, all of a sudden I found that all of the major news outlets in this country uh, uh, were under the control of one corporation or another <clears throat> and that they were becoming controlled by the corporate structure and they were losing sight of let's go find the truth and instead, they were getting bogged down with the bottom line and multiculturalism and diversity and all these various uh, uh, issues that were detracting from finding the truth. And today, it's worse than ever before. Today, uh, everything you see, everything you read, you hear uh, in the mainstream mass media, uh, from billboards to music to movies to uh, the Internet, uh, cable, uh, satellite TV, network TV, radio, it's all under the control of about five cor multinational corporations. They determine what you see and what you hear, and I try to explain to people this is why so many people are caught in a matrix, just like in the movie The Matrix, sure. ex except in that movie, <clears throat> people were physically hooked into computers, and it was generating a artificial reality for them well of course naturally we're not nobody's physically hooked to a computer today 
but the corporate mass media weaves an electronic matrix around us to where we think we understand the world, but all we understand is the world as they present it to us. You know, we may not be connected to our computer, but we are connected in a way to the TV. We, I call it the subliminal tube. And as you said, five corporations, I call it the mediaopoly. How can we really have true journalism, transparent journalism, impartial? When you have five corporations, all you have to do is look back to see what companies own these uh, major uh, media channels, if you will. You'll go back to oil companies, you'll go to, back to pharmaceuticals. But, Jim, you and I have two things in common. We have a, an overly developed sense of wonder. We want to know the truth. And also, we don't deal with conspiracy theory. We like to deal with conspiracy fact. Now, the newest book, which is just coming out, The Million Dollar Conspiracy. Because it's not out, I wasn't able to get a copy to review it, but you were kind enough to send me a table of contents, so I'm sure we can do a good show. This is also timely. But before we start, Jim, I want to get your take on the oil spill. We call it the oil volcano. Was the Deepwater Horizon oil rig sabotage in the Gulf of Mexico? If so, what are the motives? Well, uh, that's a very, very good question. And was it sabotaged uh, to, you know, right up front? I don't know. However, I find it very, very interesting and fascinating and very possibly very telling that the first thing President Obama did was, did he, did he send a fire rescue team down there? No, he sent a military SWAT team uh, to that uh, oil platform, which indicates to me that there's the very real possibility that at least somewhere up there, somebody thought that this uh, was some sort of uh, terrorism. plan. Yeah, terrorism. Of course, now, I don't believe that it was Al-Qaeda, because if it had been, they would be beating us over the head with that. Right, right. right. Now, it, it, today, just today, I just found out that this happened, Jim, back in 1979. And they were talking about all the steps they followed before they finally remedied the situation. It seems, if you listen to the clips from 1979, it's almost deja vu as to what's happening now. Ten steps. Why can't we just go back to 1979 and go to the last step they followed when they finally corrected the issue today? Right. Well, again, uh, I don't claim to be an expert in uh, oil drilling or oil recovery technology, but uh, I do understand that they were like something like twenty in excess of twenty two thousand feet. This is one of the deepest deep water wells that they had ever attempted to drill, so they have a lot of additional problems on this one, uh, you know, not to mention the pressure uh, of the water and the depth uh, that they 're at and uh, just all kinds of things. So uh, I really I don't think it'd be quite fair to to compare this one with other oil field blowouts. I mean, you know, I live in Texas and we've had oil blowouts down here all the time. Rain keeps red a dare in business, but this this one is is a bit different. Now, let's go back to to your newest publication. It, it's interesting how you have divided your book into two parts. Part one is called Zombie Nation, and part two. How to Create Zombies. The first part of your new book, as I said, Zombie Nation, it's very interesting to me because I'm always asking guests why many people look catatonic. You see them driving, walking around, they look zombified. What's causing this, Jim? Well, I think it's a combination of things. 
Uh, it's the food and water. Uh, our food, most people are on a very unhealthy diet. And, uh, you know, they eat a lot of fast foods and junk foods and fatty foods and fried foods. Uh, but that in and of itself probably wouldn't do the job. But then you add in the, the water. Two-thirds of the drinking water in this country is fluoridated. They put sodium fluoride in the water. Now, fluoride was used, uh, put in the water of the Nazi concentration camps in the Soviet gulag to keep the inmates dumbed down and pacified right. and non-resistant. So the the and there's been plenty of studies to show that if fluoride actually prevents any cavities at all, it only is effective between children above the age of six and below the age of twelve. So I think the idea that we have to have fluoride in our drinking water to help protect our teeth is just a load <laughs> of you know what. Um, and I think it's there, and I think it's been there for all these years, and it's been a constant fight and a constant argument over the fluoridation of water, and now we're seeing the results of it. People are, uh, you know, and now you start buying bottled water, and they even have bottled water with fluoride in it. Uh, I mean, they're going to get you one way or another. And then you add to all of that the pollutants in the air and, uh, and of course, the chemtrails, which I assume we'll talk about further sure uh so you got the air the water the food plus you know there's something else that nobody much thinks about i wouldn't have thought about this either except years ago when i started off as a police reporter in fort worth texas <clears throat> i would go in and just sit down and 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 chat with the police chief who was a very very educated and thoughtful man and he brought this up and as i go through life i keep thinking about this Noise pollution. Uh, we are, after all, uh, animals. Uh, we are mammals. And we're used to a, a certain environment. And the environment that we find ourselves in in modern America, particularly in the big cities, with constant noise, constant motor roar, constant traffic noise, sirens, you know, you name it, the hustle and bustle of the city, it just keeps our nervous system on on edge all the time. And some people can't handle it. They go over the edge. Uh, they freak out. They have neuroses and psychoses and all kinds of things. Uh, some people are, you know, he even believed that this noise pollution contributed to crime. And I, I don't know. I, at the time, I kind of questioned that. But now I begin to think, you know, that's an added irritant that keeps our our nervous system uh, in a jangled uh, uh, manner and, and keeps us off balance and keeps us from living our normal, harmonious life with, uh, with nature. Uh, and so you add all that in, and it's, uh, you know, it's enough to just <laughs> drive somebody to distraction. And I would simply point to, to the recent spate of teen suicides, school shootings, you know, things that ne we never thought about when we were kids. It never happened 30, 40 years ago. And now, all of a sudden, it's just part of our life, and it's so common that you just, you know, it's like, oh, well, you know, it happened again. Uh, Mel, let me tell you, when I started working in the 60s as a police reporter, um, when there was a uh, liquor store holdup or a 7-Eleven convenience store holdup, that was big news. 
that was banner news on the front page because it's just it was so unheard of. I mean, you know, yeah, it happened, but when it happened, it was so infrequent. It was a big news event. And just during the, the, the about a decade or so that I was working, all this changed, and pretty soon they became so common that we just kind of had what we call the, the hold-up roundup, okay? And it would be one story talking about two or three hold-ups. And then it continued to be so common that after a while, unless there was an inordinate amount of money taken or unless somebody was injured, the, the hold-ups didn't even make the paper anymore. Now, that's, a, that's quite a statement on the progress, if you want to call it that, of our society. They keep desensitizing us. You know, right now, hold-ups are nothing. Bank robberies are nothing. It has to be something right. massive before it catches people's attention. And what matters? Ratings. Isn't that what's important? That's, in, that's what's important to the corporate mass media. And that's why that, see, again, in the course of my lifetime, I can recall when the network TV news uh, was funded uh, under public service funds, uh, and they just allocated a certain amount of their profits to public service, and that went to the news department. The news department was filled with people with journalism degrees and committed journalists like uh, Walter Cronkite and uh, people of that ilk. And uh, But then, just again, over the course of the years, the corporations came in, took over. Uh, ratings became the big thing because you can get more advertising dollar for the news programs. That because if you think about it, every other, if it's a sitcom, only the people who want to watch that sitcom want that, watch that. If it's a drama, only the drama fans watch that. But when the news comes, everybody watches it. You've got the biggest listenership. So that's where you can command the biggest advertising dollar. So all of a sudden, under corporate control, uh, they, t they took away control of the news from public service and placed it under the programming vice president. Okay? And now he's concerned about the bottom line. And that's why today, oh, they got wonderful graphics and Things leap and jump and, and charts move and all kinds of things. And you got pretty people with beautiful bouffant hair and, you know, <laughs> right. personalities, you know. And, and, of course, you have to have the proper ethnic balance and, and, and all like that. But, hey, somewhere in there, uh, you know, hardcore truth and news got lost along the way. And so as a matter of uh, disclosure, this is a totally uncensored show. So if you are thinking of saying certain things and you were probably thinking of not saying them, please do. There's no censorship. We're not ruled by any big corporation. And that's the way we like it. But starting with your book, The Economic Collapse, which is in everybody's mind these days, all we need to do is look at the news, Greece, the euro. Was this planned, Jim? I think so. And I present the evidence in my new book, The Trillion Dollar Conspiracy, to back that up. Uh, it is now known. It's on the record. It was, has it been admitted by a former uh, chairman of the Federal Reserve Board that the crash uh, of 1929 was engineered? Okay? So, and, and this one is too. It's all part of an overall plan to destroy the sovereignty of the United States because, see, we are the biggest stumbling block to the new world order. plans of the New World Order. Yeah. 
which is, and we'll discuss this further, but, you know, most people think this is a plan to have just a one-world government, one-world socialist government. Well, not really. They don't want that, because if they had that, then there wouldn't be the means to play one nation or economic block off against each other. Mm -hmm. But if you want to know what the plan is, uh, but I'm digressing, remind me, let's go back to uh, 1984, okay, the book by George Orwell. Sure. All right, but uh, the the people who want this uh, to bring the world into a new world order, the biggest stumbling block they have is the United States, and that's because we have a history and a tradition of individual freedom and liberty. And two, we have uh, the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, which gives us the legal foundation for this individual freedom and liberty. And number three... We have guns, (laughs) and so we're a big problem to them. And so they have set out systematically to destroy this country, and they've done a pretty good job. They've done it culturally. They've done it economically. They've done it militarily. uh, You name it. And when you go back, you find the very same names, the very same families, and the very same secretive organizations like the Council on Foreign Relations and the Trilateral Commission and the Bilderberg Group, they're all behind all of this. And the same people, the same interlocking boards of directors, and the same people who've had control of the Federal Reserve System for years and years and years, in fact, created it. Uh, It's all there, except the mass corporate media, since they own and control it, won't tell you that. So most people are scratching their heads and they can't figure out why is everything the way it is. Do you think, Jim, that the the project or the plan has been slowed down by the fact that gun ownership plays a big part on, on this nation. And let me add to that, that I didn't know that Switzerland, well, I know they, they have uh, gun ownership there, but it is mandatory to own guns in Switzerland. Do you know that? Yes, I knew that. It's also the same thing in Israel. Yes. In Israel, in Israel you have to carry a gun. When I was in Israel, you know, first time I... I got there, I, I was shocked and amazed. You'd see these really beautiful women walking down the street with a newsie slung <laughs> under their arm. Right. You know, it's like, whoa, that's culture shock. But yes, and they don't have, they're not killing each other. Right. Switzerland, they, they've got one of the lowest crime rates ever. So obviously the idea that guns are the problem is just fallacious. It's not right. <laughs> that's not it. In fact, uh, in fact, anyone who wants to, argue about gun control, all you have to do is compare the uh, homicide statistics for Washington, D.C., which has the highest murder rate, I believe, of any city in the nation, and also, at the same time, has some of the most stringent gun control laws. Now, compare that with, uh, there's a city in Florida whose name escapes me at the moment, but they actually pass an ordinance uh, requiring everybody to carry a gun, and uh, you, can, you can pack a gun in that town. And they have the lowest homicide rate of any place. So guns are obviously not the problem. So you think that the, the fact that gun ownership plays a, a key part uh, on this nation, you think that's slowing the New World Order plan, if you will, because it's very yes. difficult for it to compete against all of us? Yes, exactly. Let's go back to World War II. Uh, after the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor and pretty well destroyed our Pacific fleet, there were many on the Japanese general staff that said, okay, now's our opportunity. Let's invade the United States. 
And Admiral Yamamoto, who had uh, conceived the plan for the Pearl Harbor attack, was the one that said, no, I don't think you want to do that. He said, they have guns over there. He said, we'd be facing a gun behind every blade of grass. Right. And And he was correct, of course, and that's why uh, even at the height of World War II or at the beginning, particularly when the Japanese were, you know, had the advantage, they never, after that, they never really seriously even considered invading the United States. And I don't think anyone else would either up until now. But (laughs) but now we've got (laughs) such a population of panty waste and anti-gun people and, and people that have no idea what's going on. I still think they'd have a hard time militarily invading the United States, but they are doing quite a superb job of destroying us culturally and everything else. And, and that's because the, the basic cause there, uh, Mel, is because they have destroyed our national cohesion. Uh, at the height of World War II, when we truly had foreign enemies, we had the Nazis who were, had obviously had designs and plans on invading the United States or conquering the United States, Japan, which wanted to. And uh, so it, it, even then, the president, Franklin Roosevelt, did he say, okay, uh, terrorist alert today is red, you know, everybody hide and, and be afraid. No. He came on national radio and said the only thing we have to fear fear itself itself. and he said we're all americans i don't know i don't care if your name is cohen or brown or johnson or wei ling you know you're still an american and we all are americans but we've been torn apart we've been torn apart culturally because now they've got us all fighting with each other you're either a liberal or a conservative or a democrat or a republican or a man or a woman or a homosexual or a heterosexual or a black or a white or a red or yellow you know anything they can find to drive a wedge into us they have and we fall for it it's a duality divide and conquer it's the oldest technique in the world divide and conquer and they and they're doing it and and in in fact when somebody comes up with a halfway decent idea like Arizona who all they did, all in the world they did was pass a resolution saying we're going to enforce the existing law. Mm-hmm. That's all they did. And yet look at the hoorah they caused and look at the vilification that's gone on. I mean, what I love is all these people, these pundits in Washington, are trying to vilify Arizona. And then you say, well, have you read their law? And they say, no. <laughs> they right. haven't even read the law. They don't even know what they're talking about. But see, this shows how that you can just stampede uh, shallow people and get them to just act even against their own self-interest. And one important thing we've seen lately, and this is something you didn't see before, before we could consider ourselves individuals, we had our own individuality. Are, yeah. we, are we losing that today? Yes, we are. Thanks to the Rockefeller control over the school system. Uh, you know, that, that goes back to the founding of the General Education Board, which has now become the National Teachers Association. And you've got all of these curriculums that have been devised by the University of Chicago, which is founded by the Rockefellers. And then you go back and find out that old man Rockefeller was quoted as saying, I want a nation of workers. I don't want a nation of thinkers. 
and that's why the education system has been dumbed down. And that, and then you add to that the drugging of the school kids. Okay, when you and I were kids in school, you're right. We were we looked up to the individual. You know, oh, he's a rugged individualist. You know, he marches to a different drummer, and they were generally kind of respected. But today, now, if uh, if you're out of step with the herd, uh, well, you must be a loner. You must be a misfit, and probably you need to be put on on Ritalin, Ritalin. or Prozac or one of those drugs. You know, uh, the, the millions, millions of teenagers now on drugs, legal mind-numbing drugs. Okay, uh, it's just astounding. And then. Since these drugs have been shown to increase suicidal tendencies and violent behavior, uh, then we sit back and wonder why there's uh, such a proliferation of school shootings and teen suicides. Uh, I don't know. People need to wake up. And the the only way you're going to do that is turn off that TV and turn off that radio uh, and and start thinking for yourself. And what you said is so. No offense, Mel. No, no offense. They need to keep listening to people like you, like us. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but you know what you said is so important. The uh, Department of Education, at least in the United States, is it just me, or do I feel that they don't want kids to express uh, their creativity, their individualism, and and, ex- and be able to think for themselves? They want you to be thinking for somebody else all the time, almost in a very dogmatic fashion, Jim. Absolutely, and I can tell you that without fear of disagreement because my wife is an art teacher and has been for about 40 years. In fact, to tell you how long this has been going on and how deep the problem is, she was going to go for a master's degree and to get her master's uh, dissertation, uh, she proposed, uh, she wanted to do a paper on how to stimulate creativity in children. God, what a wonderful thing. How cool would that be? Okay, and no, she was turned down. They would not allow her to do that because they said, well, we don't really know how to evaluate that. Okay, so that never got done. And being an art teacher, that's one of her key jobs is to try to stimulate creativity in children, and yet she is fighting an uphill battle against administration, curriculum, guidelines, rules and regulations, no child left behind, whatever, right. everything in the world that is geared not to stimulate creativity, but to take a child and take their mobile little minds and cram them into little pigeonholes of conventional thought and action. I, I guess we can summarize this. I always think of a quote by Henry Louis Mencken. The aim of public education is not to spread enlightenment at all. It is simply to reduce as many individuals as possible to the same safe level, to breed a standard citizenry, to put down dissent and originality. Isn't that a summary of what we're trying to say here? That's exactly what it is. And in researching my book, The Trillion Dollar Conspiracy, I consulted a a number of uh, published accounts and one of them was uh, some really great stuff that's been written in the past. Uh, one was a book called Teaching as a Subversive Activity. <laughs> uh, a more recent one by uh, my, uh, Mark Barline, The Dumbest Generation. And what Barline points out, and this is so true, and if you think about it, it's just absolutely incredible. Never in the history of the world 
has a young generation had such access to information as the kids of today have? Um, I mean, when I was a young kid, if I wanted to know something and it wasn't in a school book, I had to go to the li- public right. library and spend all afternoon looking up something, right? Yep. They can they can sit in their own room and punch up that computer, go to a search engine. They can find out anything about anything, right? Right, right. And yet they're the dumbest generation because they're not doing it. They're on Twitter or MyFace or whatever those things are, those Internet dialogue programs, you know, they're, they're all talking back and forth and, and they're all concerned about. They're not talking, that. they're texting each other. They're texting with, and, and not even in English, you know, just little small, uh, non-capitalized eyes. <laughs> yes. Just using numbers and God, who knows, you're going to have a whole little, little language there, which might be great if you want to, uh, hang out with, uh, seventh graders when you're 50 years old, but I don't see how it's going to help them, you know, uh, in the real world, unless they drag the real world down to such an idiocracy. <laughs> That's the, like the movie. Like the movie, exactly. They might as well learn Morse code. Yes, yes. It's just amazing. It's just amazing, and I don't know. I guess, I guess my problem, Mel, is that I grew up and went to a public school system that actually taught me, gave me a classical education. Do you know when I was in high school, I was actually required to take a course in Latin, a dead language. Mm-hmm. And I remember at the time, I was really griped. I thought, well, what do I want to learn Latin for? But you know what? The rest of my life, when I hit a med- medical term or I hit a legal term or I'm trying to read and I hit a word I'm not real certain of, uh, that Latin has stood me in good stead. Same thing with phonics. I learned phonics. I can sound out a word, figure it out, and I'm gone. Everybody else hits it, and they're just dead stop cold stone because they don't know how to read the word. Well, because you have many root, languages have their root in Latin. But moving forward with the, 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 the new wave, the tea parties, give us your take on the tea parties. Is this really happening on a grassroots level? Or could this be also, Jim, planned to lead a portion of the population into something the powers that be want? Rebellion, revolt, and maybe revolution, so they can finally declare martial law? Uh, it's a little of both, but I think what we're seeing here is a repeat of the 60s, because having lived through the 60s, uh, you know, you had the hippies come along and the anti-war people and the young people, and they're saying, we're tired of the old ways of doing things. We want to do something right. And they'd wear their hair long, and they wear their peace signs on their T-shirts, and they get beat up for the cops for it. And then, so what happened? The establishment co-opted them. Now little kids run around with peace signs on them, and it's perfectly acceptable. That's just bought out. Now it's commercial, okay? So they just, you know, and those people, in fact, often wonder what happened to the radicals of the 60s. <laughs> They're not all dead. Right. They're still here with us, you know? And yet, where are they when it comes to the uh, uh, unprovoked invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan? Uh, you know, where are they? they? I guess they're just too worried about their 401ks, you know? And so I think we see the same thing happening with today. I think the Tea Party movement started as truly a grassroots 
movement of the of a huge swath of the population in this country that said, look, we never voted to be socialist. We don't want to be socialist. And we think there's other ways of doing things. But I think they've been co-opted because now you got Sarah Palin jumping in. Oh, I'm with you guys, you know, and then you got and now they, they, they're going to they're using this to to drive a wedge again, again, to uh, to divide the population. You know, and, and and everybody is being instilled with this. You're either with me or against me attitude, and so I think they they they're trying to co-opt it and they're using it as a tool to further divide people. Again, if we could all simply agree to disagree, and I'll give you exactly what I'm talking about. Um, the one thing everyone uh, can agree to is that the Kennedy assassination is controversial. Yes. Well, I'm I'm here to tell you it is not controversial, okay? It it is not a true controversy. It only appears to be a controversy because of the wide gulf between those who have accepted the government pronouncements about the assassination as opposed to those who have actually studied the case, okay? So that is not a true controversy, but now a true controversy is the issue of abortion. Because there you have almost equal numbers of people who are thoughtful and caring people on both sides, and they both look at the same facts and information, and they simply cannot agree on what that means. So that's a true controversy. But why should it lead to conflict? It shouldn't, because in a free society, it should be left up to the individual and his or her doctor. Okay, you you know you can, no one should be forced to have an abortion, no one should be forced not to have an abortion. It's called freedom. <gasps> what a concept! So I don't understand why there should be any problem there. And as you said, the people from the sixties, where are they? I think now they've uh, matured to the point where they they don't want to lose their pension plans, they don't want to lose their jobs, and they don't want to basically rock the boat. You know, what's so sad is they're losing them anyway. Yes, yes, <laughs> absolutely. Let's go back to the Patriot Act. It was drafted how long after September the 11th? How long did it take for them to pass that gargantuan piece of legislation, Jim? It was a, just a month, no more than about a month or so. Not even enough time to actually type the whole thing up. And as uh, Representative Ron Paul and several others have acknowledged, they just passed that in a panic. Nobody even read it, okay? And here's a good example. Back in the late 90s, I was on top of this story. Uh, the federal government was trying to run a program through the banking system called Know Your Neighbor. Oh, it sounded like, you know, what an innocuous-sounding name. But it really was pretty suspicious. What they wanted to do was if you cashed a check uh, or, or deposited uh, an amount of money or withdrew an amount of money that was unusual for your normal banking habits, the banks were to notify the federal authorities who would then flag you and come and check and find out. Mm-hmm. And of course, the idea was we'll, we'll find out where the drug money is. Oh, right. Yeah, right. Yeah. They won't find out where the drug money is. Just go to Langley, right? <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, or, or Mena Airport. Yeah, or go to Mena. Yeah. But uh, but that the, the the word got out and people found out that this was the plan and know your neighbor they were going to they were basically making the banks the uh, snitches for the federal government. 
and everybody raised cane and they said, we don't want this. And the banks responding to their customers said, no, we, we don't want this. And so it kind of withered on that idea, withered on the vine. Well, it was in the Patriot Act. It's already there. Go check with your banker. If you draw uh, X amount of money, I, I'm not sure. I can't. I think they keep changing the amount. Uh, last time I checked, it was like $10,000. But if you withdraw more than $10,000 from your bank, they have to notify Homeland Security. That's that's so true. And what you said, uh, you mentioned uh, Senator, uh, I mean Congressman Ron Paul. Uh, Right now, in the United States, we have a two-party system. Everything is duality, left to right, Democrat, Republican, etc. You go to other countries, and you have 10, 15, 20, 30 parties in one election. If we ever had the American Party, I guarantee you, Jim, that many people who right now are, are facing each other as opponents will realize that we have more things in common than we thought. Uh, that's exactly what I'm trying to say. We do have more things in common than we have uh, uh, not in common. But uh, I'm telling you, that we just don't understand uh, what's going on with us uh, because, uh, well, let me, let me put it this way. We actually only have one party, <laughs> okay, and it's the rich party. Yes, yes. And the rich party runs the show. Now, the rich party has two uh, branches. you got the uh, liberal branch and the conservative branch, generally typified by the Republican branch and the Democratic branch. And if you disbelieve what I'm telling you, let's just go back to the uh, 1989 through 1993, the administration of George Herbert Walker Bush, a Republican, okay? Every member of his cabinet, with the exception of his old buddy Jim Baker and goofy Dan Quayle, who didn't know how to spell potato, (laughs) uh, were were members of the Council on Foreign Relations, that very, very top-level, will-to-do, posh, organization that was set up after World War One, uh, and along with its sister organization, the Royal Institute of International Affairs, for the express purpose of trying to tell the American public how that we needed to belong, well, at that time it was going to be to the League of Nations, but that didn't work, so now it's, we need to roll our sovereignty into the world government under the United Nations. That's what it was set up for, to sell us on the idea of globalization, and every member of the CFO uh, every member of the Bush cabinet, uh, except for Baker and Dan Quayle, were members of the CFR. Okay, well then, well, in 93, though, we got a Democratic administration under Bill Clinton. Uh, every one of his cabinet members, except for Secretary of Defense William Perry, were members of the Council on Foreign Relations. Okay, so then, though, in uh, 2000, uh, we got another Republican administration, right? And uh, boy, here we have Bush, we got Dick Cheney, Colin Powell, Condoleezza Rice, Donald Rumsfeld, Robert Gates, Elaine Chow, uh, EPA Administrator Christine Whitman, uh, except for Bush, all members of the Council on Foreign Relations. Ah, uh, but then came 2008, and we got Barack Hussein Obama change you can believe in oops wait a minute read his council read his cabinet robert gates still on there janet napolitano bill richardson susan rice james l jones timothy geithner hl summers paul volkner all members of the council on foreign relations so folks there's no change the rich party is still in power so can we say that uh, 
are elect well in this case uh, the president is anointed not elected in a way exactly in fact in this case in the case of barack hussein obama he was more than anointed or appointed he was created um in the 1980s his mother in indonesia was working for the uh, father of timothy geithner uh his, who is now his secretary of treasury uh-huh. And they were working for the Ford Foundation, a notorious CIA front. And so once you go back and understand that Bill Clinton, um, when he supposedly was a pot-smoking, of course, he says he never inhaled, you know, which makes me wonder, who in the hell wants somebody in the presidency doesn't even know how to smoke a joint? <laughs> but anyway... But anyway, he, he uh, you know, a pot-smoking, long-haired, anti-war student rambling through Europe and going all the way to Moscow, you know. And they're going to let him be president? Well, it's because he was actually working for the CIA. See, if you'd lived long enough like me, you'd know that prior to Watergate, the biggest scandal going on in this country was the revelation that the CIA was using student organizations as fronts for their spying activity, and Bill Clinton was one of them. Well, I'm here to tell you, I think that Barack Hussein Obama is one of them, too. I think he is a, a person that was created and, and uh, formed by the CIA. Uh, he was perfect for their purposes. He was a, uh, did not have an American citizenship, uh, whether he, no matter where he was born. He had an Indonesian citizenship. He was Muslim. He could speak three or four different languages. He was young. He was idealistic. He was perfect, okay? So they've created him, and then they pushed him right on up and into the White House. And this explains why his long-form birth certificate is being kept from the public. His school records are being kept from the public because if they were revealed, uh, everyone would find out that none of that ever happened. It's just, he's just a legend of the CIA. Since you're here, I'm going to leverage your presence with a couple of things that may be unrelated, but I want to discuss them with you. There's a rumor out there that Bill Clinton is the illegitimate child of a Rockefeller. Have you researched this? Rockefeller. Yeah. Went through Rockefeller, who was uh, uh, back at the time of his birth and was uh, governor of Arkansas. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, I've heard that rumor in Arkansas. Okay, that's where I first heard it. <laughs> they all say that's the case. Now, is that the case? I don't know. But uh, it is true that uh, Bill Clinton's background is pretty, shall we say, murky. Uh, so, uh, And that would explain why he would be picked up uh, at just this good old boy from Arkansas and sent to Oxford as a road scholar scholarship, yep. you know, and then, like I said, picked up by the CIA and used uh, uh, in their counterintelligence operations, and then propelled on into the White House. Uh, because uh, if you've read my book, Rule by Secrecy, and also the rise of the Fourth Reich, you understand that at certain levels up there, the bloodline is very meaningful. Uh, you need to be of the bloodline before you can get in that rich party, or at least in a leadership position. Right. And uh, you mentioned George Herbert uh, Walker Bush. This is one thing that not a lot of people mention, but you remember March of 1981, the attempted assassination of uh, President Reagan. Very well. Did you look into this with uh, Hinckley and, and uh, Bush's family being French with their family? Was that an attempt to get rid of Reagan so that Bush, since he could not be president at the time, could take over immediately? Well, let's go back and put it all in context. Okay. 
Ronald Reagan was the darling of the constitutional conservatives. Yes. On the campaign trail in 1980, especially in New Hampshire, he railed against the Bushes and vowed he would never allow Bush in his administration because they were both running for the Republican nomination, if you'll recall. Sure. Okay. He also said he was going to investigate the Council on Foreign Relations that Bush belonged to and other secretive organizations. And yet, when the Republican National Convention occurred, uh, Reagan is swept in uh, uh, as the presidential candidate, and the only question remained was who was going to be the vice president mm -hmm. candidate. Okay, so um, all of a sudden, the news media, which is controlled by the globalists, by the rich party, start talking about the dream ticket. We're going to put Gerald Ford as vice president with pre President Ronald Reagan. And of but, of course, since Ford had already been president and served as president, he would get to select half the cabinet. Mm -hmm. So, in other words, Reagan is suddenly forced with half a government. So at 11.30 at night, on a Wednesday night in the middle of the convention, he rushes onto the convention floor, and he says, I want to put all the rumors to rest. He said, uh, we've got to bind up the party I choose George Herbert Walker Bush, hmm. and Bush got to be the vice president. So he's a heartbeat away from the presidency. So Reagan takes office at the end of January 1981, and uh, uh, a little less than two months later, he's shot. And, uh, and by the way, Hinckley did not shoot him, all right, because at the time, I've got the network tapes of the shooting. There were all the newsmen standing around taking pictures. And you can clearly hear that there were uh, seven shots fired. Hinckley had a six-shot revolver. So there was an additional shot fired, and I think that was the one that actually hit Reagan because, number one, he seemed to be all right until he was getting in the car. Right. And by that, and by that time, they were already jumping all over Hinckley. Okay? Hinckley was just a brainwashed assassin doing what he had been commanded to do. And by the way, now they're talking about letting him out. Yes. <laughs> I, don't know if you, I guess you saw that. Yes. And, uh, and so, yes, if that bullet had been just a fraction of an inch closer to hit Reagan in the heart, he would have died and would have had Bush uh, eight years earlier. But the, what people don't talk about, Jim, is the connection between the Hinckleys and the Bushes and the fact that I believe it was uh, Neil Bush, one of uh, Bush's yeah. son, was going to have dinner with uh, Hinckley's brother the night before. Where are the chances? Exactly, and and uh, the father uh, George Herbert, uh, I mean uh, Hinckley's father, yeah, yeah. Hinckley's father and George uh, Herbert Walker Bush were old oil buddies and business partners. Yes. That's how close all that was. Come on, to, come on, folks. You know, if 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 you tried to sell this in Hollywood, they'd throw you out the door, saying that's unbelievable. And yet, that's what that's real. That's exactly what was going on. That's how close all this is. You know, but nobody's supposed to look at that because we're nobody's supposed to stand up and say that the emperor has no clothes on. And I'll tell you, try to listen to this, what Jim and I are talking here tonight in most of other shows. You won't hear it. This is something very important. And, and if you don't see the big picture by looking back at what we're talking about, you won't see it. But we're talking about the New World Order. I have a question. If the intent is to have a one-world government, then we'll still have wars against each other. Let me play devil's advocate for a second. If we have a one-world government, then how are we going to be playing against each other, Jim? 
Exactly. Well, now we get back. Thank you for bringing me back to this because this is something important for everyone to understand. Okay. Here's what the game plan is. If you want to know what the globalists have in mind for us, then you need to read the work of this British Fabian socialist named Eric Arthur Blair. And in 1948, way back there, Blair, who was well-connected to the British royals and to the British aristocracy, wrote a book under the pen name George Orwell. And, of course, that book was the infamous 1984. Well, go back and read that again, and you will find out what these globalist plans really are. And, Mel, you had a very, very good point. They really don't want one world government, because then if it's all one world government and somebody makes a decision and and that's carried out all around the world, then there's no room for conflict. Right. Okay? Here's what they want. Go read 1984. In 1984, the world has been divided into three economic blocks, Oceania, Asiana, and East Asiana. And they keep everybody in line out of fear of Emmanuel Goldman, okay, who they can't ever seem to catch. And nobody quite knows where he is. And uh, he's very elusive, but he's behind everything, kind of like Professor Moriarty in the Sherlock Holmes story. Mm-hmm. All right? Well, okay, in today's real world, it's the European Union, the soon-to-be North American Union, which will merge with the already existing South American Union, then the future Asian Union. And the Asian Union is going to be easy enough to put together because most of those Asian nations are already pyramid societies. That is, there's a handful of people at the very top, and they tell everybody else at the bottom what to do. So all you got to do is, is buy up these guys at the top or put them on your board of directors, and you've got control over the Asian countries. So it'd be, it's going to be an easy enough deal to put the Asian Union together. And so now instead of Oceania, Asiana, and East Asiana, you got the European Union, the North America, the American, the American Union. Union. Yeah, and the Asian Union. And what they do is they play one off against another continually for the conflict necessary to maintain control, population control, and to maximize profits. Okay, by selling war materials and defense materials and standing armies and everything else. And today, of course, Emmanuel Goldman is Osama bin Laden. Exactly. <laughs> you know, we, we don't know where he is. Nobody has ever seen him. He, he, you know, we get these messages that can be shown to be fabricated, and yet, you know, he's supposedly taking credit for everything. And but they can't catch him. But hey. Just don't pay your taxes this year and find out how quick they find you. That's right. That's right. <laughs> but they can't. But they can't find Osama. It's it's just you know it's really nuts because it's all out there. But I we're back to the dumbed down education. People don't read anymore. They don't read it. They don't understand it. So they don't understand what's happening to them in the real world. And when you tell people, Jim, that Osama bin Laden was known in the CIA as Tim Usman, and it was a creation of the CIA. People look at you as if you're crazy. They, they just look as if you're a conspiracy theorist. And all we need to go is back to a report from Iron Mountain. First, yeah. you have the Cold War. Then you have uh, terrorism. You invent uh, a boogeyman, Osama bin Laden. Then you have a cataclysm. Then you have uh, the alien invasion to finally get the world together. What are your thoughts on that project, uh, the report from Iron Mountain, by the way? Well, uh, uh, that has, again, been a running controversy. I have a copy of the original 
dial press edition. And I assure you, it's anything but a joke. Okay, I think it was done very seriously. But, of course, since then, they've tried to say, oh, well, no, that was just a hoax. Oh, yeah, they're going to publish a whole hardbound book as a hoax. Give me a hint. That ain't making sense. And then all you have to do is read it, okay? It's very erudite, and it's very to the point. And they were trying. This was all done in the early 60s before the Kennedy assassination when they were seriously trying to figure out because Kennedy, and this is another reason they got him killed, was serious about ending the Cold War, okay? Well, they did this big study about, well, you know, if we if we end the Cold War, uh, what can we put in the place of war uh, to act as a uh, profit generator and a social control mechanism? And basically, they came up with, well, there really isn't anything. We need to have war. We've got to have war so that we, you know, otherwise we're going to have all these young men standing around on the streets, you know, uh, possibly causing us trouble. Uh, plus, we're not going to be able to drive the war economy, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I happen to know because I've had um, a very credible uh, document examiner examine that book and then compare it to other writings and he uh, was convinced that it, that although several people obviously contributed to this uh he thinks it was written by a very well-known person connected to the New York Times who I uh, shall remain nameless but anyway he thinks it was real plus I also have spoken to some military people who were in touch with Henry Kissinger uh, at that time and said that the, he kept saying he had to leave because he had to go up uh, into the north part of New York State uh, to work on this report. So I think it's a totally legitimate report. I remember speaking of Kissinger, I was in Venezuela in Caracas for a wedding back in 1992, shortly after the, the, the coup before Chavez actually took over. And I remember there were soldiers everywhere. And I go to the elevator when it opens up to go up. Somebody says, hello. And you know who has that voice, Henry Kissinger, right next to me. And I was wondering, what is Henry Kissinger doing here just after this attempted coup? But anyway, that's a, a different story. This said, well, yeah, it's a whole different story, but you know as well as I do his role in all this. Of course, of course. But we can have uh, 10 different shows yeah, to talk about him. Yeah, but I'll tell you what, before we get off of that, let me point this out to you. This sure. will blow your mind if you hadn't already heard this. Uh, if uh, concerning the attacks of 9-11 and the only ongoing uh, so-called war on terror, everyone can agree that it is the result of our foreign policy. Uh, people around the world uh, which who used to love us and uh, admire us and respect us now hate us because of our foreign policy. Mm -hmm. And who was the architect of that foreign policy? Henry Kissinger. Mm -hmm. Okay. In fact, there are certain countries that he cannot travel to today because there are war arrest warrants out for him for war crimes. Okay. Now, having understood that, about a year ago at the Munich in 2009 at the Munich Security Conference, uh, General James L. Jones, who is Obama's new national security advisor, got up and uh, thanked them for uh, giving some kind of honor to uh, Henry, Dr. Henry Kissinger, and he made these remarks. He said, uh, I take my daily orders from Dr. Kissinger. Oh, yes, I did see that. Yeah. There is a chain of command that still exists in the National Security Council, and uh, I take my orders 
daily orders from Dr. Kissinger. This was from General uh, James L. Jones, Obama's, President Obama's national security advisor. Now, wait a minute. I don't recall getting to vote for Henry Kissinger. How did he get in there? Right. And again, that shows you that there is no change and no difference between the parties. And by the way, Mel, when I first heard that story, I thought, oh, wait a minute. This is just too too in your face. This is just too outlandish. Uh, surely this is some Internet hoax. So I tracked that back, and I found that there were several reports on that. They all said the same thing. But the key thing was there was a verbatim transcript of General Jones's remarks to the National Security to the Munich Security Conference, and it was on the Council on Foreign Relations website. And you think so, you think uh, on the right you think Kissinger, you know Nixon, and and so on, and then you think Brzezinski with Carter and and uh, Obama, but they're all in the same boat. They're all the same people, and I'll tell you what, that comes down to a story uh, from George Green, who back in the 70s was known as quite a campaign fundraiser in Washington, and he tells the story of being flown by private jet out to Aspen, Colorado, to the Aspen Institute, well, a leading New World Order think tank, and uh, there he met with Henry Kissinger and then head of the Federal Reserve System, Paul Volcker. And they were trying to encourage him to be the chief fundraiser for presidential hopeful Jimmy Carter. Yes. And he said, he said, but guys, I'm a Republican, and Carter, and you're Republicans, and, and you're wanting me to raise money for Jimmy Carter, who's a Democrat? And he quotes Paul Volcker, head of the Fed, as saying, don't worry about it, we control them both. And that, my friends, is the truth. And in the same room, I believe George Green said that he was sitting next to Ted Kennedy. All of a sudden, a 14-year-old pretty girl walks by, and Ted Kennedy says, I'd like to have sex with that one. Can you believe that? And it was George Green's daughter. And that's when he said, I'm out of here. <laughs> yep. Well, but again, now you, get, now you go back to the, uh, to the protocols, which says you never allow anybody in public office that you don't have some dirt on so you can control them through blackmail. Absolutely. And, and you know, Jim, I recently had a show that many people don't even want to touch, uh, the Franklin Scandal. You may know what that is. Oh, yeah. I'm very familiar with that. Uh, well, I had uh, Nick uh, Nick Bryant, uh, the author, and I just could not believe that this is how Washington operates. They try to find dirt. They plant the cameras and the parties so that they can own you. So I'm willing to bet that many of the members of the House of Representatives and the Senate are probably owned. Definitely. First, they try to they buy you off. And that's easy enough to do because the amount of money that it takes to run for the U.S. Senate or, or even the U.S. House of Representatives today is immense, primarily because of television. Uh, if you're not on television, you're not going to get elected. And television time is costly. And television stations don't run a line of credit for politicians. Right. They want cash in advance, okay? Because they don't want somebody who loses then say, well, I lost and I can't pay you. So you've got to pay cash in advance for television time. It's very expensive. Plus, you've got to spend more expense to do a very creative attention-getting advertisement, okay? So it costs big bucks. So the only way they get those big bucks is by going to the PAC, the political action committees, or by going to the large corporations and the insurance industry, the pharmaceutical industry, and getting big money from them. Now they're on the payroll. They're bought and paid for. And that's a good majority of them. 
But if that doesn't work, then they set you up with a woman or a young boy or something, and they get the goods on you. Or they take you out to a party and say, here, you know, try some of this, give you some crack cocaine, and then take pictures of you. Right. And they've, uh, then they got the rest of them blackmailed. And then for the handful that refuse to be blackmailed or bought, well, their plane crashes, and they just kill you. Right. That is... You're subverted or destroyed. Exactly. And that's... Uh, that's like in researching for the my book, The Rise of the Fourth Reich, I was kind of surprised to learn that in January of 1945, with most of the major cities in Germany in total ruins, the German war production was at levels higher than it had been in 1940 when they were riding high. And I thought, whoa, how, is that? how could that be? And then so I did, did some more research. And the reason is because, number one, they had moved a lot of the factories underground. They were bomb-proof. But the main reason was that the, the German people were still getting up and going to work every day and working like demons uh, to produce war materials. All right, now why were they doing that? Two reasons. Number one, propaganda. They only had access to the state government-run radio and newspapers, and they were being told, everything's all right, it looks bad now, but we're going to turn the corner, there's light at the end of the tunnel, you know, we got super weapons coming along, we've got things to turn it around, stay the course, we're going to be okay. But the main thing was secret terror. If you tried to say, hey, look, I think we're losing, then oop, the Gestapo would show up at your house and two weeks later, your folks got a letter saying you were killed trying to resist, resist or trying to escape. You know, sorry about that. Okay? And this is the same thing happening here today. They've got control of the mass media. They keep telling us everything's okay, everything's all right. Well, we're going to get this spill cleaned up. Well, we're going to take care of that. Uh, you know, they, oh, look, the economy, oh, the Dow Jones went up a couple of points today. Oh, it's looking better. You right. know, blah, blah, blah. So we're propagandized. And then certainly in the halls of Congress, secret terror. If you try to buck them, if you try to go too far, you notice Ron Paul made a pretty credible run for president despite the fact that the corporate mass media not only ignored him but dissed him every chance they got. Okay, And yet even Ron Paul was, was not uh, coming forward with uh, the questions he should have regarding 9-11. You just can't talk about it. I know. And, and he, he knew that. And he knew the power behind 9-11. And that if you talk about it and if you start making too much of a ruckus, particularly if you're successful at it, you're just not going to be around long. Absolutely. And we have to take our one and only intermission, Jim. But before we do so, I want to tell you folks that uh, after we come back, I want to ask you about... Before the bailout started, before Obama took over, you remember the closed-door session that the Congress had, and they all came out with their faces looking down and concerned. Some people say that somebody said, unless we can pay the Russians and the Chinese, they're going to nuke us. I want to know if this is true. But tell us once again how to get in touch with your work and your latest book that's just coming out, The Trillion Dollar Conspiracy. Yeah, that's due out at the end of June. Should be on the bookshelves by the by June the 29th. Um, you can get it at any bookstore. You can go to my website, jimmars.com, J-I-M-M-A-R-R-S. Um, I've got lots of good stuff on there. Um, and basically, I think it'll just be pretty much available anywhere, amazon.com, any, any place where they sell books. It's uh, being published by... Uh, 
William Morrow Company, which is HarperCollins Publishers, one of the largest ones in the country. So shouldn't have any problems. I have no doubt that this is going to be another bestseller. And your website, Jim Mars, with two R's. Jim, M-A-R-R-S.com. We also have it linked on our website. Folks, so much more to come. We're going to continue discussing the book, some other current affairs, and a lot of questions from the audience coming up. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you very much for listening. We're going to talk more with our special guest in our members section. Head on over to our website, veritasshow.com. Click on subscribe and join us in the members area to tune in to the second part of this great show. We'll take a short break, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with more. Dr. Joseph Farrell, and you're listening to Veritas. Veritas.